Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 189. This is a conversation every company must have. Is it worth letting a critical security vulnerability being pushed for a future release just to get a product feature out today that our competitors don't have? Even before the COVID pandemic set upon us, the information security industry was being transformed. Security has long been a matter of hardening organizations to threats and attacks. The goal was layered defenses, starting with firewalls and gateway security servers, as well as access control lists to provide a hardened network perimeter, while intrusion detection and endpoint protection software protected IT assets and users within the perimeter. These days, however, security is shifting left, becoming part and parcel of the development process itself. DevSecOps marries security processes like code analysis and vulnerability scanning to agile application development in a way that results in more secure products. That shift is giving rise to a whole new type of security firm, including the likes of GitLab, a web-based DevOps lifecycle tool and Git repository manager that is steadily building its roster of security capabilities. What does it mean to be a security provider in the age of DevSecOps and Shift Left? We invited Jonathan Hunt, the vice president of security at GitLab, into the Security Ledger studio to talk about it. In this conversation, Jonathan and I discuss what it means to shift security left and marry security processes like vulnerability scanning and fuzzing with development in a seamless way. Jonathan and I also talk about the COVID pandemic and how it has shaken up development organizations, including GitLab itself, and how the changes we're seeing as a result of COVID may remain long after the virus itself has been beaten back. To start off our conversation, I asked Jonathan to tell us a little bit about GitLab and what the company does. Jonathan Hunt, VP Information Security at GitLab. Okay, Jonathan, um, for those of our listeners who don't know about GitLab, could you just tell us a little bit about GitLab and also about the work that you do at GitLab? Of course. GitLab is a single application for the DevOps lifecycle with fully integrated security testing and cloud-native security defenses. We built GitLab to make it easier for everyone to participate in advancing organization security posture with a focus on reducing overall risk. And my role at GitLab as head of information security is I manage uh, a large organization of three departments and 10 teams and roughly 55 people that encompasses all of application security, security operations, and compliance and risk management. And we're here today just to kind of talk about, as we're talking about with really with everybody these days, how COVID and the pandemic and work from home in your eyes and GitLab's view um, is affecting the way 
um, security teams are operating, security development um, and, and, and application development are, are proceeding. I'd be interested in kind of hearing um, how the last few months have played out for you and, and uh, what some of the you know, themes or trends you, you've noticed are. GitLab is, is an interesting company, and, and I was probably preface the conversation with saying GitLab had an early start on <laughs> working remotely. Uh, GitLab started as a remotely distributed company and still is today. We have uh, approximately 1,200 employees in over 60 countries, uh, and we do not have a central office. So from the start, we had to understand how to effectively manage an organization, uh, not only through a remote work environment, but also this globally dispersed workforce. So uh, I would say from a security perspective, what we've done is we've put a lot of focus on a couple different things. One is endpoint security in regards to individuals working out of their own home, individuals working out of airports or the local Starbucks. They were interested in using uh, uh, endpoint management tooling, uh, remote access VPNs, whole disk encryption, that type of tooling that you would expect on on an endpoint, especially for people working remotely. I think the other thing that we've really uh, tended to focus on is the remote aspect the remote access aspect of accessing the corporate environment, what we would call the corporate environment and what we would call the production environment. So we're virtually hosted in uh, a major data center, um, an, an infrastructure, a, a, a PaaS provider, if you will. And uh, so what we're looking at doing there is um, we've really uh, focused on a zero trust strategy. So rather than uh, trying to put all of our time and effort and restricting access by IP address and regions and uh, firewall rules and access control lists, what we're really looking to do is uh, authorize, identify and authorize the individual and the endpoint they're coming from and uh, commit that as a trusted source. So those are the two things I think as a company that, that we're, we're really focused on in terms of like securing a remote workforce. You know, obviously GitLab is, is really square in the middle of the sort of um, uh, sec DevOps or DevSecOps, you know, kind of security plus DevOps. I think my audience is pretty familiar with, I mean, they're a pretty technical bunch, so I don't think we necessarily need to define DevOps, but if you could maybe talk a little bit about what we're referring to when we're referring to sec DevOps, security plus DevOps, and and kind of what that adds to what they might already know about uh, DevOps as a as a um, as a practice. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're doing is trying to redefine the DevSecOps space. And what GitLab has done is we've uh, incorporated a number of security tools in order to not only shift like shift security left, if you if you'll forgive me for for using that maybe overused terminology. But um, what we're trying to do is provide developers and companies the opportunity to identify vulnerabilities, to move faster, to fix uh, bugs or defects or vulnerabilities in their code before production push with the least amount of resources required. Traditionally, what you've seen is developers will write their code, they'll merge 
merge it, maybe it goes through some QA, right? Um, it'll go, it'll do some 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 end-to-end tests or some functionality testing. At that point, it's pushed to production or it's pushed to staging, and then security gets involved. We run a ton of scanners. We're running DAS scanning and SAS scanning. We have findings, right? We take these findings back to the development org, and then they work on the findings, and then the cycle repeats until eventually seven years later that code gets pushed to production, right? Obviously, I exaggerate. But point is, is that with what we're doing and what um, I, I think the industry industry is hungry for is to see this happen more seamlessly on the dev side. So developers can push the code and the scanning's happening happening immediately. The fuzzing is happening immediately. You know, QA tests now include security checks, security testing, dependency scanning, DAS scanning, um, and allows them to proactively fix that and fix it sooner. Uh, and that way the DevOps lifecycle can move a lot faster. What types of capabilities are we talking about here? And it, it seems actually that the sort of list of security capabilities that GitLab has is expanding as you've done some acquisitions in, in recent months and years. So so you're looking for vulnerabilities in application code that got that. Um, what, what else is in there? Yeah, so obviously we're looking for vulnerabilities within the application. Um, and we do that through two different two different methods. One is uh, dynamic application scanning, like you mentioned a second ago, DAS scanning. What that's going to do is, is run scanning against compiled or executable code, right? We're also doing static analysis scanning. And what that's doing is that's just looking at the code itself, line by line, looking for obvious uh, vulnerabilities or improperly coded code sets. In addition, we're, we're doing fuzzing uh, now as a new feature. Uh, so we've integrated fuzzing into the product. Uh, and, and so what that's going to do is is use large data sets to try to break the code, to try to exploit bugs or right. defects in the code. And, uh, and then we're also working on some compliance initiatives that's going to help users of GitLab to quickly attest to an auditor uh, or to a, th- to a customer, to a third party, uh, the compliance built within code scanning and code reviews. And from the, you know, kind of developer's standpoint, how does this influence the work that she or he may be doing on a day-to-day basis as part of a DevOps team, uh, agile development uh, program? So it does have, it does have two different effects. One is you, you might Initially, a developer might look at this and say, oh, this is going to slow me down, right? Now I've got to wait for the scanner to run and I've got to react to the results. And 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 I know I've got to get three releases out by the end of the week. That's a very real concern. But what I would what I would say is the, the way that the way it's actually helping, the way this this sort of methodology or uh, tooling helps is that that's going to be caught anyways, right? So it's going to be caught after um, after it's merged or in staging, when all the SAS and DAS scanners are run by the security org, then they find it, then it goes back to you. And, and that cycle actually takes a lot longer. So what we've seen is uh, a lot of companies, um, uh, our feedback has been extremely positive that this has improved productivity. It's an incru- improved efficiency. Teams are producing a lot more uh, quickly. They're releasing a lot more frequently. Um, and then also it does have a side 
benefit that people don't really talk about. And the benefit I think that this provides is developers are seeing in real time the code that they've made and the vulnerabilities they've produced. So if they're immediately seeing that they that they coded a SQL injection, it's going to immediately tell them that after their code is scanned, before they merge it, before they push it into staging, it's just going to show them that. Then they have to go back, take a look at that code and fix that code. Whereas if you think about eliminating that from the cycle and then security coming back to you saying, oh, hey, you've got a SQL injection, you need to go fix this. It's sort of after the fact. So it's not in real time. Right. They're not taking a deeper look at that code. Then they're just looking at it as fresh code, or maybe even it goes to somebody else, right? Maybe someone else is responsible for fixing that code. So it benefits the individual, it benefits the company, it benefits the organization as whole, it saves time and resources, and it improves efficiency. So you guys, uh, as you mentioned recently, um, well, uh, you recently made two acquisitions, um, a company called Peach Tech and a company called Fuzzit. Uh, that do fuzzing. Um, this is kind of a tool that really developed amongst uh, practice that developed amongst independent security researchers, um, maybe even uh, black hat, gray hat, white hat, uh, of really just hammering applications, uh, compi- you know, compiled applications with input to try and find uh, vulnerabilities, um, uh, errors in the code that, that could be exploit- exploited, whether that's SQL injection or buffer overflows or things like that. Talk about how how that fuzzing capability, you know, kind of fits into the whole puzzle, how developers uh, might leverage that in in the course of building an application. And and of course, whether it works, whether we know that at the end you get get more uh, secure applications at the other end, uh, having done this uh, fuzzing as part of the, you know, DevSecOps uh, process. What companies usually do is um, during the during the CI/CD pipeline, they have some form of QA involved, and that QA is looking at typically like functionality testing or end-to-end testing. They're using data sets, and they're using data sets that are proven and tried and true and well known, and they know it's it's a real set of data, right? So that's what these data that's what functionality testing is doing is you're putting in inputs that you know work to ensure that after the change that data still works to prove that under typical operations you haven't broken your code you haven't broken your software right and then the same thing with the scanning right so then then you have your sas and das scanning or maybe even a dependency scanner in there and that's looking for in fact vulnerabilities right so now have i introduced some some form of vulnerability but what is typically forgotten is sort of the malicious approach at trying to break your software or maybe unknown or unexpected uses of your software. We've seen it at GitLab. People have used our tools in ways we hadn't originally thought of, and then we've had to react, right, and adapt to that. Um, In other software companies, I've heard that story a number of times. I've even heard software companies changing sort of like the focus of their software to adapt to what customers, the way customers are using it versus what their original intentions were for their product. So um, that's the benefits of fuzzing. It's going to ingest large amounts of data, um, you know, random data sets, uh, unexpected data sets that is hopefully going to provide um, or well, hopefully won't provide, but is intended to exploit any sort of like a crash, a buffer overflow, a memory leak, uh, any of those built-in code assertions that you're assuming. Right. Um, yeah, it's re- I mean, it's really interesting in some ways, like 
that that type of capability is almost like what you had what you might have a bounty program for right so like well we don't we don't do this as the application development firm but you know let's hire a whole bunch of kind of you know white hat hackers to think outside the box for us and do the fuzzing and do these other things and they'll you know report the vulnerabilities into us and then we'll fix them but of course, the smarter approach is just to make that part of your development process, <laughs> and then you don't have to take the chance or fall back on the randomness of whether you know an independent bounty hunter is going to find it, right? So you're doing you're doing two things here. One is you're uh, saving time by identifying the bug or defect in your code and fixing it sooner. But secondly, you're reducing your risk of having that publicly available to you know, what you're hoping is going to be found by uh, an ethical hacker, but could just as easily be found by a malicious or nefarious individual, right? That's, so I don't want to discourage anybody from using bug bounty. I am a huge bug bounty advocate. I love to talk about bug bounty. We have, um, just for a bit of self-promotion, we have GitLab was named as uh, the uh, in the top 10 bug bounty programs for Hacker HackerOne uh, a week or two ago. And so we invest a lot of time. Yeah, thank you. We invest a lot of time and money into bug bounty. And there's a lot of benefits of bug bounty. But I would say that the goal is not for bug bounty to be the end all. The goal is for bug bounty to hopefully prevent the breach of your company for anything that you've missed. The goal is to find this stuff yourself and fix it before you're going public with it. Okay, final question. Um, what, so, you know, obviously there are, there are all different, you know, just software development is, is really common within organizations today. Most companies are software development companies in one form or another. Um, but um, companies are coming from all different kind of starting points, right? From the from the startup, you know, that that might own zero IT infrastructure aside from their employees' laptops, you know, and everything else is in the cloud. And they're starting with a clean slate to, you know, companies, you know, banks and financial services companies and healthcare companies that have decades of legacy IT investment and, you know, might have a IT environment and a and a corporate structure that that reflects, you know, a very different you know, computing era, I guess. Um, what are some of the challenges that organizations have in embracing uh, DevSecOps? Yeah, so there's probably a number. Um, there's there's probably a number of of focus points to look at in regards to these concerns, right? I think first and foremost, I think some companies are still struggling with security getting a seat at the table, right? Security being injected into that, that CI CD pipeline or the DevOps life cycle, if you will. And, um, and, and that ranges from small to large companies as a whole, right? That's not just a small company problem or not just a big company problem. Uh, once they have a seat at the table, then I would say it's a matter of probably two very real things that every company can identify with. Number one is prioritization, and number two is time to release, right? So um, 
there may be a huge backlog of security vulnerabilities. There may be a huge backlog of product features. And how do we spend that time? How do we, how does product in, in the engineering orgs, um, you know, if, if they, if they want to get a release out in the next two weeks, do they have time to fix three P1s, for example? So really it's a matter of prioritization between security requests and product requests. And then the third thing that I think most companies struggle with, and this may even be what they struggle with the most, is um, the speed, right? Time to release. Companies today are trying to yeah. deploy code faster than ever. Ever They're trying to uh, revolutionize their product. They're trying to be innovative. They're trying to find product differentiators. They're trying to respond to customer requests. They're trying to implement more and more features every day um, to gain a competitive advantage. And um, and that's the competition, right? And that's where it's at. So it's not just competition exter with external forces, it's competition with internal forces as well. So you have to have cohesion and synergy between the product security and engineering orgs. And you have to effectively evaluate priorities between product features and security vulnerabilities. And you have to, you have to assess what is going to have the biggest impact on your company, right? Mm. And this is for each company to decide for themselves. It's based off risk um, appetite. It's based off executive preference, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's, this is something that should be discussed. This is a conversation every company must have. Can, is it worth letting a critical security vulnerability being pushed for a future release just to get a product feature out today that our competitors don't have? I can't answer that for everybody. That's up for each company to decide. But yeah. what I can say is, um, what hopefully our customers will appreciate uh, the approach that we've taken at GitLab is critical security vulnerabilities are priority number one. It gets prioritized over everything else because what mm -hmm. matters most to us, and I, I just want to preface this with saying, I'm not saying this is this doesn't matter to other companies, but what matters most to GitLab is protection of our customers, protection of our customer data, right? Our trust and integrity with our customer base is what helps GitLab be successful. And so we do prioritize our critical vulnerabilities. We do prioritize our high severity vulnerabilities um, above all else. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's a conversation that some companies just maybe aren't having or maybe even aren't thinking about. So hopefully this benefits somebody out there. So um, as companies have shifted to work from home, and this is going back to sort of like the, the times that we are in, um, what I think is important to understand with your development teams and your engineering orgs and your security teams and your company as a whole is I think it's important to understand that um, what matters in managing remote teams is less about managing time and more about managing results. And that's just something that I don't hear anybody talking about, right? So, you know, being from a remote world, being remotely distributed for the last five years, the companies like the GitLab and the Envision and, and the Mozilla's and the others that are remotely distributed, we, we sort of get that. We understand that flexibility is key. We understand that we're working with people in 60 different countries and 13 different time zones. Like we, we get that. Um, but companies that are shifting or have shifted already from a brick and mortar office location to everybody working at home, 
Um, I would just say, just understand there's, you know, distractions, there's, you know, um, uh, needs, there's, you know, uh, people are at home, kids are at home, spouses are at home. And, and I just think it's important to provide the flexibility to your staff to ensure that what matters most is the results in not, uh, you know, ensure that they're in front of a computer from eight to five every day. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, uh, there are many, there are many changes I think that are going to result, you know, after the dust clears from the the COVID pandemic, um, and, and hopefully most of them for the, for the, for the better. And I'd like to think that that notion of, um, you know, FaceTime or seat time, uh, might be, might be one of them that, um, you know, or organizations will have enough data to look and say, yeah, you know, we, we had all these employees working from home. We weren't, we weren't peering over their shoulder to make sure they were at their desk. And lo and behold, you know, stuff got done, you know, (laughs) without us needing to sit there and babysit them. Um, So I, I, I do hope that that's one of the things that, that's, that comes out of this. Another thing I'm really excited about, Paul, is I don't know if you saw, I, I believe it was yesterday, um, so I was looking up, I, I had, um, another discussion here recently and I was looking up, um, online, you know, the sizes of remotely distributed companies. Cause I was trying to, I was trying to look for a specific example and it turns out I couldn't find it because the largest companies, the largest remotely distributed companies are still sub 2000 people. Um, and, uh, wow. I saw an announcement yesterday that Fujitsu has now announced a plan to shift from a corporate, you know, infrastructure, an office environment to remote work. And they have over 80,000 employees. Uh, And so they released like um, proposals yesterday to like their workforce. And I think that is going to change. I think everyone is waiting to see, you know, how that can shape the future of remote work. I think you're right. And I think the spillover effects from that um, in everything from, from obviously commercial real estate being, yes. you know, yes. front and first and foremost, commercial real estate, but but even just to, you know where people live, you know, um, uh, the need to um, you know live live in a big city or or, or close to it, you know, um, uh, you know that that's going to change. Um, certainly, the relationship between employees and employers and, and kind of what what work means um, might might change as well. Um, so I, I, I think you're right. And um, I think the economic argument has been there for a long time. But, um, you know, it's, it's always it's always hard to be the first one kind of over the top to do it. Um, and especially for large companies and, and COVID has kind of been that forcing function to, to, to make them go ahead with an initiative that they almost certainly would have thought, you know, there are way too many unknowns and too many risks to do this on a, on a large scale. Um, yeah, yeah, and, I, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's a, there's a, just basically, you know, supporting what you're saying. There's a lot of research out there demonstrating the benefits of remote work, not only from the individual, but also from the company. So people are less stressed. They have more family time. They eliminate the commute. They save money. There's more flexibility in their schedule. I could go on and on. It's been a great conversation and I really you know, appreciate your thoughts and insights. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Jonathan Hunt is the vice president of security at GitLab.